Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is 2022 and dogs are back with a bang because there is just so much to fight for for public education and our young people. We have a press release for you and it's going to be a very interesting one. It's actually a letter, amongst other things, from Mr Morrison about the Religious Discrimination Bill. And uh, as well as that, We've got some very, very interesting material. There is a church, well, it's certainly from the point of view of taxation exemptions of church, that has decided that it will sack an employee because they've got the vax. They've been sacked for being vaxxed. And that is going to uh, tell us about that. And Sorrel has got a very interesting press release from Save Our Schools on the shameless greed of the wealthy Victorian private schools when it came to job And That's a very interesting article too. Oliver is going to uh, read for us that kids and teachers deserve better than this crisis in the public school system, uh, which came out in December, but which we think is worth uh, telling you about. And Dale... Is going to be deaf for tonight and she's going to go over to America where they are realising the privatisation of everything is not working, certainly not working for children in public education. And Maddie, of course, has got a great state school. So without any more ado, let's get down to press release 919 which you can also read on our website at www.adogs.info. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you. This is Press Release 919, the Religious Discrimination Bill. Don't divide us. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has told the Rationalist Society of Australia that he does not want the debate over the Religious Discrimination Bill to become a divisive issue for the country. In a letter sent late last month, Mr Morrison said that Australia was an exemplar of acceptance and tolerance. Like you, it is my strong preference not to see this become a divisive issue in our country, he said. To this end, I thank you for your continued patience and grace. Here is the letter from Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Dear Dr Doig, for so many Australians, faith is the cornerstone of our lives and a source of great strength for our community. The ability to live in a country where you could live your faith free from persecution is one of the primary reasons many choose to make Australia their home. I'm resolute in keeping this promise of freedom to all Australians. At the last election, I committed to promoting a more tolerant, multicultural, multi-faith, liberal democracy by fixing this important weakness in our discrimination laws. In the final week of Parliament this year, we introduced legislation to create a Religious Discrimination Act. This act will provide genuine protections against Australians being discriminated against because of their faith and beliefs. Until now, there has been no standalone legislation to protect people of religion or faith against discrimination, or indeed for those who choose not to have a religion or faith. Australia is an exemplar of acceptance and tolerance. This act would ensure that Australians have the freedom to practice their faith, that religious schools can uphold the tenets of their beliefs and the ethos that makes their school a community. I'll just interrupt there. Here's our Prime Minister saying that there is nothing that in law that protects people of faith. He obviously doesn't know the Australian Constitution, Section 116. Um, And this is the Prime Minister of Australia. 
Uh, thank you, Jane. While the Act still faces challenges on the floor of Parliament from other parties who choose not to allow it to pass the House of Representatives before Parliament concluded this year, I and my government remain committed to its success and to supporting Australians of faith. I thank you and the many people from individuals of faith through to the leaders of broader religious groups who have provided constructive feedback in the process of developing this Act. Like you, it is my strong preference not to see this become a divisive issue in our country. To this end, I thank you for your continued patience and grace. Together with the support of you and your community, we will stand strong and continue to protect Australia's status as the most inclusive, tolerant and multicultural place in the world. Well, inclusive and tolerant uh, is what the public school system is because it uh, allows all people, all children, all teachers, whatever their background, to be there. What is divisive is, in fact, schools which discriminate on the basis of religion. And what worries a lot of people, of course, is that we pay for them. We are paying through our taxes to divide our children. And here is, here is our Prime Minister who doesn't understand what real religious liberty or real liberty of conscience really, really means. Uh, for, for a lot of um, genuinely religious people who had to go through the wars of religion, it means being free from the state, which means not taking a penny from the state. But unfortunately, our religious people long ago lost their integrity by taking billions and billions of dollars from the state. But uh, Mr. Morrison doesn't seem to understand any of that. Um, anyway, do go on. Uh, the, the rationalists don't accept this any more than the dogs do. In response to that letter, the RSA president, Meredith Doy, has urged the Prime Minister to withdraw his support for the bill because it's already causing division. You write in your letter that Australia is the most inclusive, tolerant and multicultural place in the world, and I tend to agree, she says, which is why you need to do, we need to do everything we can to keep, keep it that way, she said in a video published on her at Meredith Doig Twitter account. Well, we're now going to play you Meredith Doig, who is the president of the Rational Society of Australia, and her response to Mr Morrison's letter. Yesterday I got a letter from the Prime Minister of Australia and I'd like to share with you some of what he wrote in this letter. It's about the Religious Discrimination Bill. He writes that Australia is an exemplar of acceptance and tolerance. Well, yes, Prime Minister, I agree with you which is why the original inquiry into religious freedom in this country, the Ruddock Inquiry, concluded that there is no problem with religious freedom in this country. Then he says, like you, it's my strong preference not to see this become a divisive issue in our country. Well, again, Prime Minister, I agree with you, but that's exactly what the Religious Discrimination Bill, in its current form, will do. The only people who really want this divisive and unnecessary bill are religious conservatives who lost the same-sex marriage debate. They're still angry and resentful, but they need to get over it. They lost the debate. The sky has not fallen in. Move on. This bill is already causing division, and not only between the religious and the non-religious, but also within the religious communities themselves. It's pitting fundamentalists against the much larger number of progressive religionists. You write in your letter that Australia is the most inclusive, tolerant and multicultural place in the world. And I tend to agree, which is why you need to do, we need to do everything we can to keep it that way. Prime Minister, don't do it. Don't keep pushing this divisive and unnecessary bill. Don't divide us. You're listening to the Dogs Program and uh, welcome back. And Maddie has got a really interesting article about how one person got sacked from their church employment by being vaxxed. Over to you, Maddie. 
Thank you so much, Jean. Yes, a legal expert has warned of the powers that religious organisations have to hire and fire staff after a fringe church sacked a worker who got the COVID-19 jab because it said that went against its beliefs. Lainey Chait is seeking damages for unfair dismissal after she was allegedly sacked by the Newcastle-based Church of Ubuntu for getting a COVID-19 vaccination. Lainey Chait claims she was unfairly dismissed by her employer after she received the COVID-19 jab and she worked for the church, which runs a wellness clinic that sells medicinal hemp products as a client consultant for 12 months but was dismissed in October after her boss found out she had received the jab. A letter from the church's vice president, Karen Burge, praised Miss Chait's work but said getting a vaccination was inconsistent with its religious teachings. It is the position of the CRU that to receive the COVID-19 injection consciously and deliberately with intent is in contradiction with our constitution and contrary to our position on what is required of us by our Lord, God, and Creator. Ms. Chait could no longer remain a church member and a subcontractor, according to Mrs. Burgess' letters. The CRU is currently making arrangements to assist Laney by offering her alternative work arrangements as a subcontractor through their affiliates. Ms. Chait said she opted to get vaccinated to be able to travel, cross borders and see her family and friends in other countries and states of Australia. And Miss Chait, who has epilepsy, said she supported the church's efforts to provide holistic approaches to health other than Western medicine. However, this is a quote, I do not support how I was treated, nor do I support being shunned by people in the wellness industry for making a choice that was right for me and my health. She also disputed the description of her as a subcontractor rather than an employee entitled to protection against unfair dismissal. Miss Chait is seeking damages equal to about three months' wages plus back payments for superannuation and other entitlements not paid during her employment. The unfair dismissal claim comes amid a parliamentary inquiry on the federal government's religious discrimination bill, which opponents fear will lead to to workplace discrimination. The Sydney Anglican Diocese said in a submission to the inquiry that a gay Sydney school teacher was not terminated in January 2021 because of her sexuality, but because she believed Christians should be able to enter same-sex relationships. The debate about the proposed religious discrimination bill often neglects to acknowledge religious institutions are already permitted to make discriminatory hiring and firing decisions so long as they are motivated by their religious beliefs. According to Joellen Riley Munton, a professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Munton said, religions did not have to prove their reasons are valid according to some measure of objective rationality. They just have to establish that they took their decision in good faith to avoid injury to the religious susceptibilities of adherents of that religion or creed. That was a quote from Professor Munton. Ms. Chait's solicitor, Mark Swivel, said the decision to terminate her employment due to vaccination was inherently unfair. There is nothing in the decision to vaccinate by an employee that relates to their performance or suitability for the work they were hired to do, he said. A church spokesman said the religious organisation did not believe it had any claim to defend as Ms. Chait was never an employee and they consider the entire affair around the church and wellness clinic somewhat of a media ruse. He said the church was pro-choice, not anti-vax. The church's website said it was carrying on the Ubuntu tradition as taught by Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Archbishop Tutu received the COVID jab in one of his last public appearances before his death last week. The church spokesman said Archbishop Tutu was a great man who did great work, but the church was not in any way limited by him or his personal views in regards to COVID-19. The Ubuntu philosophy is far greater than that, he said. Unfortunately, many great religious leaders and religious organisations are in their view, unfortunately, not honouring their original teachings in regards to the COVID-19 inoculations. Mr Swivel said there was nothing specifically religious in making a health decision to be vaccinated. One would hope so. One would really hope so. That mm-hmm. this actually shows you 
uh, the, the Pandora's box that our Prime Minister and others are actually opening up when they have a religious discrimination bill uh, which seeks to override the discrimination bills of the states. And um, there really should be no, no necessity for any of this at all. But this church, like any other, is a charity and has uh, taxation exemptions. We pay for it. So yeah. there, is a, um, there is a concern, uh, a real concern about this. Dale's oh. got a few comments uh, to make. Uh, there, was, there was over 400 responses to this article in the Sydney Morning Herald, by the way. Uh, it, it really did get a lot of uh, a lot of response from the general public. Over to you, Dar. Uh, yes, so of course it got heaps of comments. Um, Moonwalker said, uh, I have no problem with them selling medicinal cannabis because cannabis has amazing curative properties, but I do have a problem with the lady being fired for being vaccinated. That is bizarre and totally unacceptable. And then the lioness said, I hope they aren't GST exempt and get assistance from our government. Well, lioness, mm. get, guess again. Uh, and then Gia Smith said, uh, the religious discrimination bill would support this sacking and discrimination. This bill and yeah. discrimination has no place in society. Then John S said, it could be argued that the supply of medicinal hemp products to consume is not natural. So how does that differ to the vaccination or, for that matter, food to sustain life? Uh, Alpaca says, I'm pro-choice, not anti-vax. You have a choice. Get vaccinated or stay away from me. See, there's choice. Then Tom sort of brought the Bible into it by saying, we're told in the Bible that we're created by God in his image. From that, surely God gave us the intelligence to develop our methods of survival, be they through strength and speed, but also through the intelligence that he, she gave us. That intelligence has been used to develop medications that save lives, including vaccines. It's time religions stopped using the thinking of thousands of years ago and adopted the logic and reasoning God gave us. Oops, that could mean surrendering surrendering much of the power they have over their followers and I think that's a little bit uh, too Eurocentric considering that Ubuntu uh, doesn't necessarily get its teachings from the Bible that uh, they are talking about but uh, then the big M says uh, surprise when an organization operates an alternate alternative belief system that offers medicinal hemp, it comes up with alternative rules regarding vaccinations. Who'd have thunk it? Um, and then Northern Girl quite rightly says that they're shocked by the Church of Ubuntu's lack of tolerance, especially as they've been often judged and discriminated against. Uh, Deb says, since when has any church got any say over what you do with your own body? Well, I'm sorry, Deb, but uh, did you do you not know the Catholic Church's position on contraception, on abortion, on women's reproductive rights? <laughs> According to some religions, you know, you, right, you, so right. you do not have any ownership of your own body, especially if you're female embodied. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this this really did uh, get people quite um, quite worked up, didn't it? Um, and and our listeners might be asking, well. Why, why is the dogs dealing with this? This really has got nothing much to do with education. Well, the problem is it does because a lot of these fringe religions like Scientology, uh, Hare Krishna and what have you, as well as the major religions like the Roman Catholic Church and the Anglicans and Presbyterians and others, they run schools. And perhaps... Um, the largest systemic school system, which has come out very much in favour of the Religious Discrimination Bill and wants it and demands it, is the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but there's a very interesting uh, um, letter in the age of the 5th of January this week, which uh, I thought our listeners might be interested in on this issue. Teaching talent trumps religious beliefs. This writer found the article, Schools Claim Right to Choose Catholic Teachers, of December the 22nd, 
somewhat disturbing. Religious schools are largely funded by taxpayers, therefore it is unreasonable for public funded schools and hospitals to discriminate on religious grounds on the employment of staff and or students. Surely students deserve to have the best teachers possible based on professional and academic proficiency, not their religious beliefs. But it is reasonable to assume that the Catholic attitude to reproductive health issues forms part of a hospital policy in Catholic-managed public hospitals. If this is the case, the public is not being well served by these institutions. Again, these entities are funded largely by taxpayers' money, which should ensure that staff are chosen for their qualifications, experience and proficiency, not their religious belief. The preoccupation of the federal government with matters of religion is divisive not only in terms of changes to staff selection practices, but to encouraging tribalism. And in fact, if they took Section 116 seriously, the state should have nothing to do with religion and vice versa. That is what Section 116 says. They should make no law for the establishment of any religion or for um, stopping the belief system of any religion or for the employment of public service. Mr. Morrison just doesn't know his constitution, unfortunately. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with a few funding figures from Sol. She's got a very interesting article for us. This is Hugo Race, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Subscribe now. Well, we're back again. This is the Dogs Program, and we hope that you're sticking with us this afternoon because Sorrel is going to tell us about the shameless breed of the wealthy Victorian private schools. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So, yeah, the shameless greed of some of the wealthiest, most exclusive private schools in Victoria was revealed in their financial statements published before Christmas. 21 schools received $90 million in JobKeeper payments while making profits of $97 million. Most of them serve highly advantaged families. The new financial statements are posted on the Charities Commission website. They show that one of Victoria's most exclusive girls' schools, Methodist Ladies College, got $10.4 million from JobKeeper and made a profit of $15 million in 2020. It increased its profit over the previous year by $7.8 million with the help of JobKeeper. MLC charges $34,000 for fees for year 11 and 12. 80% of its students are from the highest socio-educationally advantaged quartile and 96% come from the top two quartiles. It receives nearly $10 million in recurrent government funding and has assets totaling $163 million. Several other exclusive schools raked in over $4 million each from JobKeeper whilst making million-dollar profits. Lauriston Girls' School got nearly $6 million from JobKeeper in 2020 and made a profit of $3.7 million. It's a highly exclusive school with 85% of its students coming from the top SEA quartile and 98% from the top two quartiles. Its year 11 and year 12 fees are $37,880,000. Loretta Mandeville Hall in Turak got $5.1 million and made a profit of $7.2 million. 73% of its students are from the top SEA quartile and 94% are from the top two quartiles. Turak College at Mount Eliza got $5.4 million from JobKeeper and made a profit of $5.4 million. 
Brighton Grammar got 4.7 million and made a profit of 7.2 million. Mentor and Girls Grammar got 4.5 million and made a profit of 3.4 million. Mount Scopus Memorial College got 4.3 million and made a profit of 5.2 million. St. Catherine's School got 3.8 million and made a profit of 3.9 million. Ganazo F. CJ College got 3.7 million and made a profit of 4.4 million. Oof. And Strathcona got 3.6 million and made a profit of 2.1 million. Those are bizarre numbers considering we're talking profit after a year when the private sector has been crying poor. Yeah. These are private schools who are only making a profit because of government emergency funding. And Where has that funding been for the public schools? Absolutely nowhere. And they're putting, yes, they they got no job keeper, but um, they're uh, they're putting their fees up next year anyway, these uh, schools. The private schools, yeah. yeah. Is there a few more figures there? Yeah, yeah, there is. These schools uh, serve highly privileged families. Between 60 and 80% of their students are from the top SEA quartile and 90% or or more are from the top two quartiles. Several schools such as MLC, Lauriston and Strathcona provided fee remissions, rebates and discounts to their families. Um, The newly published financial statements add to those of another 39 schools previously published and analysed by Save Our Schools. A total of 60 Victorian private schools received $222 million from JobKeeper and made $193 million in profits in 2020. Apart from five schools, all made a profit out of JobKeeper and 52 increased their profits from 2019. The total increase in profits was 99 million and these schools received also 483 million in recurrent government funding in 2020. You should be asked to pay it back. It's the very definition of rotting, isn't it? Yeah, and then the government says that uh, we can't have everything for free. Well, seems that these people can have millions of dollars for free. Um, as the Herald Sun's Susie O'Brien reported, several schools have repeatedly refused to divulge their payments. Mm. These have obscured their payments by including them with other government grants or other income. For example, Christ Church Grammar in Turak received an increase in Commonwealth government grants of nearly 200% in 2020, but did not reveal its JobKeeper payment. Hmm, sus. JobKeeper has proved to be a gravy train for wealthy private schools serving the most advantaged families in Victoria. These schools were not going to the wall because of COVID. They have very secure financial cushions. Mm. They have multi-million dollar assets, with several of these schools having assets worth over $100 million. Their total assets amounted to $3.6 billion. The greed of these highly privileged schools is obscene. Completely agree. They grasp any opportunity to get their snouts in the taxpayer trough, yet they see themselves as having superior moral values that are central to their elitist culture. If they had any common decency, they would give the money back, as some firms have done. As Senator Rex Patrick said, to take the money without being affected is to abuse the goodwill of the taxpayer and to deny taxpayers other much-needed services in areas such as healthcare, aged care, and indeed education. Yes, all very important things that we could use those millions of dollars for. The Morrison government has readily resorted to prosecuting ordinary people that may have got overpayments of a few thousand dollars from Centrelink, which is not surprising seeing as Scott Morrison was the author of RoboDebt as well. It has been unforgiving in pursuing them as length and rigorous. If you're a wealthy private school, you get away with massive overpayments. It is a glaring double standard that favours the wealthy and hammers the poor. 
JobKeeper was just another opportunity for the Morrison government to provide even more special funding to private schools. It is icing on the cake of a huge funding boost for private schools through a highly flawed method of determining their financial need and by special funding deals not based on need, such as the $1.2 billion Choice and Accountability Fund. A slush fund. Yeah, Victorian private schools have been showered with funds by the Commonwealth and Victorian governments over the past decade, whilst public schools have been denied adequate funding. Government, Commonwealth and state funding for private schools increased by four times that of public schools between 2009 and 2019. Government funding for Catholic and independent schools increased by $2,000 sorry, $2,050 and $2,006 per student, respectively, adjusted for inflation compared to only $514 per student for public schools. The total resources of Victorian private schools far exceed those of public schools. The total income of independent schools was $25,944 per student in 2019, in Catholic schools was 17,000, compared to just 14,000 in public schools. Wealthy private schools seized on JobKeeper with the connivance of the Commonwealth government to extend their massive resource advantage. The Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, Anthony Fisher, has conceded that Catholic schools have never had it so good in terms of funding. This can be the said the same of independent private schools. The resource advantage of private schools is set to continue for the rest of the decade under the terms of the Commonwealth State Bilateral Funding Agreements. Private schools will be funded at over 100% of the schooling resource standard, while public schools will be funded at less than 91% of their schooling resource standard in all states except the ACT. As a result, public schools will remain massively underfunded. JobKeeper for wealthy private schools has compounded the vast inequality in school funding in Australia. Their ruthless pursuit of greed must be ended by thoroughgoing reform of school funding to ensure that it is solely based on need. Hmm. Well, there's been so many attempts uh, to have needs policies and they've all failed. The only way forward is really just to take them over because we pay for them and open them up and not have um, discrimination because that's what private school is. It is an institution set up to discriminate against teachers and students. But what is very interesting about all of this is that you can see what happened with JobKeeper with these independent so-called schools, but you can't see what happened with the systemic schools, particularly the big Roman Catholic ones. I reckon that the figures would be astronomical, uh, that the um, these lovely uh, slush funds that have been raked in by the so-called independent schools would fade into insignificance with what has gone into the systemic uh, schools. But uh, we'll have a break now and uh, we'll be back shortly. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe well you're still listening to the drugs program i hope and we now have an article which lindsay connors from uh, sydney uh she used to be a state school advocate uh not in time on the schools commission i would say a very strong one but um she's certainly become a born again public school advocate in the last uh, few decades uh, and she's written a very interesting article, which I'll just go to bring to you. <clears throat> Thank you, Jen. This is an article by Lindsay Connors. Kids and teachers deserve better than this crisis. Oh, better than this crisis in the public school system. 
The first strike in a decade by public school teachers in New South Wales demands an answer to the question of how much a teacher is worth. A decline in teachers' pay relative to other comparable professions over three decades and a growth in the intensity and insecurity of their work were factors leading into this month's strike by the NSW Teachers Federation, according to Professor John Buchanan. This article refers also to the recent comprehensive review by a team headed by former WA Premier Jeff Gallup, which culminated in the report Valuing the Teaching Profession. The strike took place with New South Wales facing a significant teacher shortage. The causes listed above are compounded by increasing student enrollments, an ageing workforce and a decline in university enrollments in teacher education. Like all state governments in Australia, the NSW government is obliged to ensure that there is a school place for every child. So it is no wonder that the New South Wales Education Minister and her department are anxious to deny that there is a crisis or that they have allowed a teacher shortage to develop in this essential service. In its attempt to reassure the public that it has any problems well in hand, the New South Wales Education Department did provide a useful guide to what a teacher shortage really means in practice. Insisting that the shortage was not a crisis, it announced a supply strategy that involves advertising campaigns, faster qualifications, and poaching teachers from elsewhere. As one who has been through periods of teacher shortage in the past, let me decode this pronouncement. What it means is emergency recruitment and training of new teachers will not give due regard to the fact that teaching is a highly intellectually demanding profession. It means importing teachers from overseas with little or no regard to the difficulties that can arise in classrooms for both teachers and students where the former may be unfamiliar with our school system, as well as the local and broader culture, not to mention the linguistic and cultural diversity of the student populations in many schools. It means that the students in some schools are denied access altogether to certain subjects in the curriculum or are taught by teachers working outside their area, own area for qualifications and expertise or in overly large classes, or that they struggle with all these conditions. The hostility with which the education, <coughs> excuse me, the education minister, Sarah Mitchell, attacked the striking teachers was surprising. No acknowledgement was made of the gratitude and respect due to them for their work on the front line of the fight to contain the damage of the COVID pandemic and to make major adaptations to their work to support their students. From my perspective as an outside observer, the Federation played a leadership role throughout these past two years, not least in serving the interests of students and teachers as well as the wider community through providing informed advice to government. It was difficult then not to be shocked at the attack by the same minister launched on this union, which she accused of being a protection racket that fights transparency and is hell-bent on hanging students out to dry for political purposes. It appeared to be the Federation's claim that wages and conditions are the biggest obstacle to attracting and retaining teachers, which brought on this hostile response from the Minister. Paying teachers what they deserve is a source of ongoing tension between the profession and governments which erupts in times of crisis. <clears throat> Serving on an august national education and employment board some decades ago, I ventured into this very issue. In a throwaway line in my speech to an education conference, I asked this question. Why does my cat's vet earn more than my child's teacher? I happened to have veterinarians on my mind at the time because I was dealing with two of the family cats who required the services of our local vet. A dear old mother cat needed hormone treatment for the feline equivalent of menopause, while a younger male cat was afflicted by adolescent acne. I was taken aback when my rhetorical question appeared as a large headline in one of the tabloids. A senior colleague clearly felt that this had lowered the tone of the board and took me to task at the next meeting. The reason why my cat's vet earned more than my child's teacher, he explained to me simply, was that we need a lot more teachers and cat's vets. My initial reaction to this statement <clears throat> excuse me, was that it was flippant and facile, but I later came to see it was quite profound. Teaching is a mass profession and a public one. In this country, even the teaching costs of the large private sector have now in effect been shifted to the public purse through the mechanism of recurrent grants from the government. Relevant employment statistics show that for around every 14 school students, we employ the equivalent of a full-time teacher. 
For the whole population, we employ the equivalent of a full-time nurse for around every 84 patients. While for a cat population of some 3.7 million, it would appear that only one vet is employed for every 308 cats. The daunting size of the teacher salary bill and the government budget means, in reality, that this is never really likely to be among the highest paid professions. It never has been, but in the past, there was a social contract around professions such as teaching and nursing. In the case of teaching, there was an understanding that job security and a range of other conditions provided some compensation for moderate financial rewards. But this contract has been progressively dismantled by governments with more interest in markets and privatization and social cohesion and reciprocity. Many of those entering the teaching profession these days are part of the precariat, denied the full-time permanent positions they need if they are to afford roofs over their heads or start families in the areas where their services are needed. As well as restoring the social contract around teaching, there is a need for a broader and more varied range of career pathways that cater for the complexities of teachers' work at different stages of their careers and that are linked to wage structures alongside the existing structure for rewarding promotions, as well as the expertise and experience gained through length of service. The Gallup report should be a blueprint for a New South Wales administration. The setting of curriculum standards and teaching standards have been major achievements by government over recent years, but they are only meaningful where they are accompanied by resource standards that recognize the complexities of teachers' work. In the NSW public school system, to quote John Buchanan, there is not enough labor for the tasks set. Our children deserve better than this, and so do their teachers. In allowing this crisis to develop, both Commonwealth and NSW governments have displayed an indifference to the public school system and to our young people. For some of these, teachers will be their best bet, best hope of a decent and rewarding life. Wasn't that an interesting article indeed? But um, we'll have a bit of a break and uh, then we'll be back with Dale because she's going to take, or she's going to be Jeff this week, telling us about some thoughts from America. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m. and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program because Dale's here to take us over to America and the Diane Ravitch Bog. Unfortunately, Australia seems to always be wanting to ape our great and powerful friend, and it's not always in our best interests or those of our public schools. Over to you, Diane. This week, uh, Diane Ravitch is talking about a book by Donald Cohen and Alan McCallion. The book's titled The Privatisation of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. And this is very applicable to everything that's gone on in Australia, considering this market theocracy we now find ourselves in. The Privatisation of Everything co-author, Donald Cohen, is the founder and executive director of In the Public Interest. And the co-author, Alan McCallion, is the best-selling author of Metal of Honour and a doctoral fellow in history at American University. Besides the author's individual work, the team at The Public Interest contributed significantly to the book with research and documentation. Of their intention in writing the book, the authors state, our approach is both idealistic and practical. We want readers to see the lofty values and big ideas behind the creation of public goods, and we want readers to feel empowered to question those values and introduce new ones. We want to help change the conversation so we can stop talking about government monopolies and return to talking about public control over public goods. They detail several cases showing the downside of the government being forced to give control over to private business. In this era of human activity-induced climate change, 
What's been happening at the National Weather Service, or the NWS, is instructive. In the 1960s, President John F. Kennedy believed that the US and the Soviet Union could find a field of cooperation in supporting the World Meteorological Organization. As a result, 193 countries and territories all agreed to provide essential data on a free, unrestricted basis. Each day, global observation add up to 20 terabytes of data, which is processed by a supercomputer running 77 trillion calculations per second. The book notes in the 1990s, at about the same time that forecasting got consistently good, private interests and free market absolutists started insisting that the NWS and related agencies were competing with private enterprise. And now Barry Myers, who's the head of AccuWeather, was loudly accusing the government of running a monopoly. He went to the extreme of calling for the government to get out of the weather predicting business, which made no sense since AccuWeather is completely dependent on NWS predictions. After a killer tornado in 2011, NWS employees proposed a smartphone app to better inform the public. The authors report that this ultimately took a back seat to Meyer's insistence that his AccuWeather apps shouldn't face unfair competition. So to this day, the NWS has no smartphone app. Weather forecasts are pretty good for up to a week. But after that, as time passes, they become more and more useless. The models for predicting the weather are highly dependent on the preceding day. And the farther you get from accurate data for that day, the more error invades the predictions. Uh, the NWS restricts its predictions to a one-week time frame. But AccuWeather and the Weather Channel, in order to attract customers, provide meaningless two-week up to 90 days predictions. Extreme weather events are life-threatening. The authors state the NWS's mission includes saving lives. The business model of corporations like AccuWeather includes saving lives of paying customers only. It reminds me of how uh, the old fire brigades used to work where if a house was on fire, if it had the little stamp on the front of the building saying it was insured, then they'd put it out. But if there was no plaque saying they were insured, then the fire brigade wouldn't put them out. In Australia, fortunately, we've got the ABC with its local channels that deal with extreme weather events. But uh, if Mitch Murdoch has his way, that will be privatised too. Oh, yeah, if this government um, has it. We're way. dealing with people's lives here. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, and there are many episodes like the NWS detailed. Uh, in the section on private prisons, we read that such atrocities as the Idaho Correctional Facility, known as Gladiator School, uh, when detailing the privatisation of water, were informed of, the, of Nestle CEO Peter Brabeck stating how extreme it was to believe that as a human you should have a right to water. Well, that's a right to life. <laughs> this is where privatising at public education stabs democracy in the heart. So the first public school in America uh, was Boston Latin School and it was founded in April 23rd in 1635. America's first public school only accepted boys for their curriculum centred on humanities, including the study of Latin and Greek. Its more famous revolutionary era students were Samuel Adams, John Hancock and Benjamin Franklin. Now, these revolutionary thinkers who gave American America democracy were educated in a public school and would later agree that free public schools were necessary to a functioning democracy. When Betsy DeVos was calling for vouchers and charter schools, she was not she was implicitly demanding public dollars support religious schools that would not accept transgender students or homosexual teachers. She wanted schools free to teach a doctrine of science denial and religious bigotry. Freedom of choice in this case meant the freedom to discriminate with the blessing of public funds. Does that sound familiar, anyone? One of the 
several disturbing stories about the menace of privatising schools comes from Reynolds Lake, Oakney in Georgia, where a wealthy real estate developer, Mercer Reynolds III, made a charter school the centre of his community development. The charter school application called for 80% of the children to come from Reynolds properties. The other 12% would go to students in nearby wealthy white communities and the remaining 8% would go to countrywide residents. With a mix of taxpayer and private funding, Reynolds built an impressive school. It had a piano lab with 25 pianos, a pond and offered 17 AP or applied classes. The school is 73% white. The nearby public school, that is 68% black and would never dream of a piano lab, has seen the Reynolds School continually siphon off more and more of their students. They've been forced into laying off staff and tightening budgets. Cohen and McAllian concluded this was a clear-cut case of rich whites diverting money from struggling black families in order to further push them into the margins. They used the ideas of school choice and free market to justify it. As the book makes clear, every time a public school is a public good is privatized, the public loses some of their democratic rights over that lost good. This is a powerful book that everyone should read. In the last chapter, the authors call out to us: we cannot let private interests sell us public goods as consumers because the free market can't avoid creating exclusions. School choice quickly devolves into segregation. Public parks and highways are divided into general versus premium services. In the midst of a national health crisis, ventilators go to the highest bidders. And now I think we'll go to a good news story. Over to Maddie for our Great State School. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our great state school of this week is Werribee Secondary College. Congratulations, we became aware of the school because on the uh, front page of The Age this week, there was a young man who had done extraordinarily well in the International Baccalaureate exam. And uh, a very interesting school it is. It's really giving all those private schools yeah. out of their every way a, uh, a run for its money. Over to you, uh, Maddie. Yes, great. So Werribee Secondary College is a leader in international education in Victoria. They implement the best quality educational practices evident throughout Australia and internationally. Their college creates adaptable, lifelong learners who are confident, creative and resilient individuals empowered to shape the world in you know, which we live. Our college, their college, is accredited with the Council of International Schools, CIS, the International Baccalaureate Organization, IBO, and authorized to offer the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program. Um, so we'll start at their junior school, which is years seven and eight, where the students undertake a program based on the Victorian curriculum, which involves a core curriculum. It includes studies in GEMS, which is geography and mankind and society, English geography and history. Um, and that program has been well established at year seven to assist with the transition from primary school. Uh, the junior school students study all eight key learning areas, English, math, science, humanities, health, phys ed, tech, arts and languages, which load. Um, and up at the college, all students study one language other than English and select either Chinese, Italian, Japanese or Spanish. They also participate in a weekly session called Respectful Relationships and Pathways, which focuses on pastoral care, exploring important social issues, as well as considering their future pathways and career options, which I think is a great thing to offer. And high achieving students 
may be eligible to enroll in their exclusive select entry program, which offers a more challenging advanced level of curriculum. And then we move on to middle school, which is year, years nine and 10. All of the students undertake same subjects, English, math, science, humanities, information and communications tech, health and phys ed, and that's based on the Victorian curriculum. And then elective studies can be chosen from the arts, tech and languages. They also participate in the Respectful Relationships and Pathways class, which you know is great that they're continuing it through middle school. Um, and then students in the Select Entry Program at Year 10 are able to begin undertaking BCE studies. And then we move on to the Senior School, um, and it offers multiple options to set students on the best path to their future studies and careers. So they can do VCE, VET, or VCAL, and then there's lots of elect electives that they can do. Alternatively, the senior students can choose to join their worldwide international baccalaureate diploma program. Um, I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you from the ACARA My School website. So there's 1,582 students enrolled at the school, and their ICSIA value is a bit above average at 1,032. There is 24% of the students from the upper quartile. There is 27% from the second highest quartile. Um, there is 24% in the third quartile and 25% in the lowest quartile, which is quite broad, really. Mm. Uh, it's very representative of the Australian um, no, socioeconomic community, but 70% speaking a language other than English. That's pretty incredible. And one only 1% are Indigenous students. I'm going to talk about their finances. Recurrent grants from the Australian government is $3.9 million. From the Victorian government, $15.3 million. Fees and other parental contributions amount to $1.9 million. And other private contributions amount to $1.9 $1.2 million. All in all, it costs $14,253 to send a student to this school, which is a bargain, in my opinion. And in NAPLAN, everything is above average. So congratulations, Werribee Secondary College. You are doing a really great job for your students. Well, we've come to the end of our program. We hope that you enjoyed it and you'll be with us uh, next week and if you want to find out more about what you've heard go to www.adogs.info but it's bye for now i dreamed i saw joe hill last night alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where 
strikers strike and organize. It's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw your hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. Sir. Uh.